One of those alluring, almost irresistible qualities that we see in Jesus as he walked upon the face of this earth is that he was so real, authentic, genuine. In fact, his words had no equal. And even his critics were forced to admit, we've never heard a man speak like this. They were original. Ye have heard it said, but I say unto you. He was authoritative, yet instructional. He was firm, yet gentle. And through John's gospel, we also understand that he was equally touchable. The kind of person that if you'd have looked into his eyes, you'd have felt warmth, kindness, and compassion. I believe those same magnetic qualities are still to be found in his body called the church. I believe those that slide into a pew on Sunday morning should live in Realville. So that when there is an assembly, a meeting, that real things happen. Real forgiveness is discovered. Real peace and real joy is experienced. Real warmth and real fellowship takes place. Why? Because here we really meet God. And in this process called sanctification, that process where God takes us and chips and shapes and molds and our character to be like Christ, I like to think in that outcome along with spiritual health and, and holiness, that we become healed and more real. A little more vulnerable, more touchable. I think the same ought to be true of the words that are spoken in our midst. I think the words that we hear should be real. Real truth for real issues we face today. In a world filled with so many voices, this ought to be the one place, the sanctuary, where you hear it real. You hear it straight. No spins, no twists, no deception. No hidden motives. That's exactly what the Apostle Paul is going to do in our text today. The Apostle Paul keeps it amazingly real. You would open your Bibles to our text found in Romans chapter 8. Verses 12 and 13. I want to welcome all of you. I want to greet you in the name of Christ. We are, are, are certainly are glad to have our visitors and certainly welcome you to this part of our service. kind of like to think that our praise and worship is, is the appetizer and, and this part is the meat and potatoes. 
But as you're turning to your text today, I've only chosen two verses today because I think Paul is setting something in front of us. We need to understand a little more, with more, a little more with depth. And uh, for that reason, I've chosen to put things together on a PowerPoint. Ordinarily, I really encourage most of you to follow in your Bibles. Today, I would encourage you because of the various scriptures we're going to be turning to. I would encourage you to follow on the PowerPoint because I know that we're all human and after a certain amount of scriptures we tend to lose interest. So I would encourage you, you can write down the reference, but I would encourage you to follow on the PowerPoint because I have put all the scriptures uh, in that. Looking to our text found in Romans chapter 8 verse 12. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live after the flesh. Verse 13, but if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. I want you first of all to notice the context. This is so important. Notice the word brethren. This passage is spoken or is written to Believers, those who have received the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, people who are blood-bought and whose sins are washed in the blood. People who within themselves have the third member of the Godhood himself, the Holy Spirit. This passage is not written to people who trust in Muhammad. It is not written to people who trust in Buddha. It is not written for people who trust in themselves. Nor is it written to someone who would trust uh, in Joseph Smith. This passage is absolutely not for those who are outside the body of Christ. This passage is specifically written to believers who are born again and possess eternal life. Now if you recall in the last message that God's greatest miracle is taking death and out of death producing life. And that this body, which is already fading, this body which is heading towards death, a nature that is uh, the Adamic nature that we are born with, and out of that platform of death, God is going to produce life. And... Uh, he does it out of the human body. And uh, when that person, he does it by when a person is drawn by the Holy Spirit. And that person turns in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ and receives Christ. God puts into that person the third member of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit. The very same spirit, the very same power that physically raised Jesus Christ. Christ out of the grave. So it is out of this platform that God produces life, this platform of death. And there's really no greater miracle. If you think of all of God's miracles, there's really no greater miracle than that. Now, within every child of God, there are two natures. Someone who's truly born again, there are those do two natures within you, the nature you grew up with that's selfish, that's bent, whose bent is always away from God. Um, 
And then there's that uh, divine nature, the Holy Spirit. Let me illustrate that for you. At my home, I have two sources of electrical power. I have a generator where I can produce electricity. And I also have the power which comes from the utility company. Now, between those two sources of power and my home, I have what is called a transfer switch. And when I flip that switch into the up position, I draw power from the utility company. And when I flip that switch to the down position, I draw power from the generator. Within the child of God, there is that transfer switch within you. And when you choose to uh, flip that switch in the up position, you draw the power from the Holy Spirit. And you are just as able to flip that switch to the down position and draw the power from that old selfish nature that you're born with. Those two natures. By the way, the transfer switch within your heart is not like the transfer switch that I have. There is no neutral position. You're either drawing power from one or the other. All right? So... Now, Paul says, now, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh. We are debtors not to keep this, this transfer switch into the down position. And here's what Paul is saying. He's saying you owe something to God. Why? Because he saved you. Because he's given you eternal life. Because he's given you the Holy Spirit. And because he's given you that amazing power, that same power that raised Jesus Christ You owe it to him to keep that transfer switch in the opposition. You're a debtor. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh. You owe it to to God to keep that thing in the opposition where his power can flow through you. Why? Because he's all about producing life out of death. Okay? Now, but what happens when a child of God, when somebody who possesses eternal life, someone who's been justified, someone who has the Holy Spirit within them, says, wait a minute, I'm not going there, and he chooses to flip the switch to the down position. Um, When the genuine Christian chooses to presume upon the grace of God, rebel against God, and take his own way. This is why I like Paul. You see, the very same problems that were back in Paul's day are still real problems today. He's just keeping it real. What happens when a child of God chooses to presume upon the grace of God to take advantage of the grace of God and to do things that are contrary to the word of God. Now before I go any further, let me help each of you understand this is a human problem. Before you look at somebody else in some other pew, let me help you understand this is just a real human problem we all have. In our our baptism discipleship class, 
we have pretty good literature, literature, but occasionally I come across some things that just kind of make me grit my teeth. And one of those things was just a simple statement that was made or sent in, the, in that uh, book. And here's what it said. The Bible teaches no Christian, not even a young Christian, will sin willfully. And so I stopped for a moment. I took the class. I said, I, w I just want to ask each of you two questions. I said, the first question is, that I'd like to ask you, have you, each of you, received Jesus Christ? And they all went through, and they all replied in the affirmative. I said, now, since you've received the Lord Jesus Christ, have you always, to the exact, followed his will? I'm grateful for young Christians, because they are very, very, very honest. And they replied in the negative, no. You see, if all of us were to be honest, we'd have to reply the same. You see, it's a human problem that we're all guilty of. And that process of becoming like Christ, there are some hard moments. So what happens when a believer willfully lives after the flesh and presumes upon the grace of God? Well, you see, God does not leave us guessing. He tells us in a very straightforward way, if you live after the flesh, you shall die. The child of God who who chooses to rebel, live after the flesh, is going to experience some kind of death unless there is a change of course. So what death is Paul talking about? Well, we know there's a spiritual death that Scripture talks about. There's an eternal death, or would be the same. There's an eternal death we see in Revelation chapter 20. And, of course, we all know from experience there's what we know as the physical death. Well, there are expositors, commentators, and pastors who go back to Revelation chapter 20 and to those two verses, and they simply conclude that Paul is talking about the second death, that those who walk after the flesh are going to experience that second death or that eternal death, which is the eternal separation from God. Simple conclusion, and they stop there. And this is why, this is just a great example of why Bible exegesis is so, so important. Good, solid rules we go by when we deal with Scripture. To get to that point, you have to conclude some, some, some things that we have learned on this journey. You'd have to conclude to, to, to believe that, that brethren, if they live after the flesh, are not brethren. And that someone who is justified and lives after the flesh becomes unjustified. And that someone who is born again becomes unborn again. 
You'd have to also believe that someone who, who possesses eternal life, that that eternal life shrinks down to six months or perhaps five years. I want to suggest to you this morning, Paul is not talking about Revelations chapter 20 at all. But that Paul is talking about a different kind of death. And I will certainly show you the scriptures that, uh, that it is in harmony with the rest of scripture. But he is talking about death. You see, the believer who refuses to allow God to operate in his life, choose, refuses to leave that, switch in, that transfer switch in the up position, falls under the corrective operation of God. There is something every believer, I mean, that, that believer is going to experience. And it's not just here that we find it. We're also going to see that it is in John chapter 5. John talks about the same thing. Um, look at John chapter 5, verse 13. I want you to note the context is exactly the same as the context that we're reading that John was writing to believers. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God. He's talking to Christians. He's talking to people who are born again. That ye may know that you have eternal life and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. Verse 14. And this is the confidence that we have in him that if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. And we know that, that he hear us whatsoever we ask. We know that we have the petitions which we are de have desired of him. And, but notice this. Here's what we want. If any man see his brother sin a sin, which is not unto death, he shall ask, and he shall give him life for them, that sin not unto death. But notice this. There is a sin unto death. I do not say that he shall pray for it. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not unto death. Three things I want you to, four things I want you to get. First of all, the context, he's talking to believers. He's saying that all, all unrighteousness is sin. Two or three, he's saying that there are some sins that are not unto death. And there are some sins that are unto death. In other words, we know that everything disobedience is sin. But in God's corrective operation, there he deals with some sins with a much greater severity than in others. And the Apostle Paul is putting in front of us that an onward walk Presuming the grace, uh, presuming upon the grace of God will ultimately bring God's most severest discipline about. Now this corrective operation is called the chastening of God. And I'm going to get into what this sin unto death is about, but first of all, I want you to see some principles, uh, some things that we learn about the chastening of God. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5, 
Notice what God says. He says, ye have forgotten the exhortations which speaketh unto you as children. The Phillips correctly paraphrases this and says, ye have perhaps lost sight of the piece of advice which reminds you of your sonship in God. The context is still believers, those who have received Christ, those who are born again. And uh, the problem is those believers had stepped away from the word of God. And something happens. When a believer steps away from the word of God, throws the transfer switch down, God's corrective operation begins. The problem with this is that when we've stepped away from God, stepped away from the word, we don't understand why the hurt has come into our lives. Um, he brings pain called chastening. And I want you to understand that God does not waste pain. Um... The pain that God brings into our life is not something that, uh, we, the way, because we've stepped away from God, sometimes we see it as unnecessary and God just being hurtful when the opposite is just the truth. We're going to see God has an absolutely amazing love for us in the midst of this corrective operation. So, God is reminding these believers that if chastening is coming to you, stop fighting it. There's some things that uh, you're, you really, when God chastens us, there's something that God wants us to, he wants to add something to our life that is missing. Now remember, God's ultimate plan is to produce life out of death. Now notice the two words in which he says, uh, he says um, my son... You have, you have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. And then he uses two words, my son. Those are amazing words. I can still remember in those days when I walked alongside dad, and dad would meet some of the guys he worked with, and he'd introduce me, and he said, this is, this is my son. I can hear a tinge of pride. There's none of you that wouldn't enjoy that kind of experience, right? And as much and as great and as good and as wonderful as that was, how would you like hearing that from God? This is, imagine God saying, this, this is my son. Let me take you a step further. Go beyond imagining it. God really is saying it. Those are relational words. Those are terms of endearment. Those are words of value. Those are words of appreciation. My son. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. That's the, the writer is quote, quoting Proverbs 3.11. I like it. I like it better in Proverbs 3.11. I like what he's saying. My son, 
Despise not the chastening of the Lord, neither be weary of his correction. That word weary means to be anxious. Don't become anxious when God is giving you some pain. You see, the really the thing of it is it's called correction. God is not just God is not in the business of punishing. God is the business of adding something to us that's missing, that's something we need for some life skills, some life knowledge that we need to effectively become what he desires. God's purpose of pain is never, ever to destroy you. I, I just It needs to be so clear. Jesus said, I have come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. Part of the process to an abundant life includes some pain. Notice what he says in verse 6. For whom the Lord loveth, he ch- he chasteneth and scourges every son whom he receiveth. You know, sometimes when we're in the middle of God's chastening, it seems like we're the only one. But God says that's just not true. Notice what he says. This includes every son. Every one of us, there's something we need to get. There's those two things on the bottom. We receive chastening, number one, because he loves us. And number two, we need it because none of us are perfect. Every one of you at some point or another in life are going to experience some chastening. Why? Because we desperately need it. We desperately need God's correction from time to time to keep us on course. Again, it's not to destroy us. This happens to all of us. And, and I know in... In, midst, in the midst of pain, sometimes it, it feels like we're the only ones that have pain. So why does God chasten and scourge every child? It's, to, uh, it's because he loves us and we desperately need it. Now verse 7, if ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as sons. For what son is he whom the father chasteneth not? Verse 8, but if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are, par- of all are partakers, then ye are bastards and not sons. If God does not chasten you, friend, you don't belong to the family of God. You see, so often we will look at, at negative, why the pain, rather than seeing the positive, you, when I'm in the midst of some pain, I'm thankful that God loves me, cares about me, and wants me to have the best. Um, Verse 9, furthermore, we have all had fathers of our flesh which corrected us. He's talking about our earthly parents. And we gave them reverence. He's talking about we respected them when they corrected us. Shall we not much be... Rather be in subjected unto the Father of spirits and live. Verse 10. For verily they, for a few days chasteneth after their own pleasures. Again he's talking about. He's using an illustration. He's talking about earthly parents again. But notice this. But here he switches again to God. 
But he for our profit, that what we that we might be partakers of his holiness. God brings pain into our life, number one, for our benefit. It is not for God's benefit that he brings pain into our life. Notice this. It says, for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. When you think of holiness, don't think of a long robe and white beard. Think of spiritual healthiness. That no matter which part of a person's life you look into, it's healthy. That's holiness, a well-roundedness. That's God's goal in this process of chastening, bringing a healthiness or a well-roundedness into your life. Now, one of the main tools which God uses to develop us in the church is communion. And a failure to understand communion brings about some very, very painful consequences. That really is a serious matter, this thing of communion. I'm going to show you why. In 1 Corinthians 11... Is, that, is the passage that one of us pastors always reads at the preparatory service or at the communion service. It's that passage you always hear. You can bank on it. And uh, that passage has to do uh, with what is called the Lord's table. I want you to understand it is not called the Savior's table. Because at communion... We meet Jesus Christ not as our Savior, but as our Lord. And a failure to do so will bring God's corrective operation into your life. First Corinthians 11:27. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink of this cup unworthily shall be guilty of the body and the blood of, Christ, of the Lord. 28. But let a man examine himself, so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. Notice this, then verse, verse 30, For this cause many are weak, sickly among you, and many sleep. For if we judge ourselves, we will not be judged, we should not be judged. And when we are judged, we are, not cha we are chastened of the Lord that we should not be condemned with the world. Verse 30, this is what I want you to get. God is setting in front of you a sin unto death in slow motion. You see, the Corinthians when it came time to communion, it was it was just bad. Imagine communion at its worst, and you you'll you're not even close to the Corinthians. 
They literally had parties. The rich people would come. They would party and leave. The poor people would come. And there was nothing left of these love feasts. They were called love feasts. It was just a disaster. And, and uh, Paul admonishes them. They, they took this incredibly unseriously. And because of that, God's corrective operation kicked in. And there, was, there were those who were, who were weak. There were those who were having experiencing sickness. And notice what it says, and many sleep. That word sleep is not what happens sometimes in church. That word sleep is the word that God uses when he talks about death for the child of God. And he uses the word sleep for the child of God because we know that our bodies will not be in the, stay in the grave. There will be a resurrection. It will awaken the body. That's why God uses the word sleep. And when God talks about unbelievers, he uses the word perish. Believers sleep, unbelievers perish. Because of disobedience, because of, of a walking after the flesh, many, not a few of the Corinthians, had experienced God's divine discipline in the most strictest terms, to the point where he said, I'm not going to have you on this earth. I'm in divine discipline. He removed them. From this earth. Here's why communion is such a serious matter. You give public testimony to four things when you commune. There are four truths that you're saying when every time you commune that are true of your life. That you have accepted, number one, that you have accepted the Lord Jesus not only as your Savior, but as your Lord. Two, that you have surrendered your life to Christ and there are no future plans for sin. Three, that you are living after the Spirit, not after the flesh, and are being led by the Spirit. And four, that you are free from all, get this, known sin, everything that God has brought to you, you have dealt with. Now, granted, there are certainly things in some of our lives probably that we aren't aware of. But everything that is known, you've dealt with. When you commune, and this is not true, God's corrective operation kicks in. And we have two illustrations in Scripture of sins unto death. Um, the classic example is found in Acts 5. It's the life of Ananias and Sapphira. And he, at that point in Acts, the church, it was just the beginning of the church. They had everything in common. People would sell what they had, bring it to the church, would give their money to the church. Well, Ananias and Sapphira did the same thing, only they decided they would keep some of the money and pretend they had given everything. 
And when they came before the apostles, the apostle asked them, Is this what the land sold for? And they both said yes. They publicly lied to God and to the church. It was a public lie. And in the space of three hours, God took both of their lives. Why? Because it was public. Note that the sin was not keeping some of the money. That was not the sin. The sin, the lie, was pretending they had gave everything. They could have kept some of that if they wanted to. That was not wrong to keep some of it. The problem was pretending they gave everything. The other, the other instance that we have in Scripture is found in 1 Corinthians 5. And as we know, the Corinthian church was, was, had, had a very, um, was extremely tolerant to sin. Uh, Corinth was extremely an ungodly city. And uh, because of that, the, the church just developed a very tolerant attitude towards it. But what happened is a man had an affair with his stepmother, just to put it very clearly. And uh, the church just kind of winked at it. And in verse 5, or in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 4, the Apostle Paul gives them some direction. He says in, the, in verse, verse 4, In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, when ye are gathered together in my spirit with the, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, Notice this, verse 5, to deliver such a one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Paul is clearly talking about a sin unto death. He is talking about divine discipline. He is talking about chastening. And this is where I'm going to stretch some of you. Notice what Paul says. He talks about the body being destroyed and yet the spirit still being saved. There are those who will experience the divine discipline of God and they are still saved. I know this flies in the face of what some of you have learned in the past, and I freely admit that I have some intrepidation about teaching some of these deep truths. But there's something that I have that, in, that exceeds that intrepidation. And that is a passion that you guys hear it straight. Free of my opinions. Now, in teaching this, I was given some very, very good advice by someone that I respect. So I'm going to give you an incredibly healthy balance to this truth. I 
can't imagine meeting Jesus on those kind of terms. Nor could I ever encourage any of you ever to meet Christ on those terms. I had the occasion of sitting under someone that I respect as he taught this passage. And uh, so I asked, asked uh, just asked the question. I, I asked, I said, well, so where is that point where we experience that di- divine discipline and are still saved? Where our bodies destroyed and our spirits still saved? I loved his answer. He, sp- he, he gave me an answer that spoke of wisdom. He said, uh, Keith, we never want to know. Back to our text. Verse 13, But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body ye shall live. That word mortify means you subdue. How do you subdue this rascal nature that is within all of us? How do you subdue that? Let me give you an illustration that really, I think, illustrates well how that nature becomes subdued. All of you have been to a a wedding ceremony and then the reception And all of you have watched the bride and the groom cut the cake. The bride goes and places her hand on the knife, and then the groom places his hand on top of the bride's hand, and together they cut the cake. Living, being led by the Spirit or living after the Spirit is very similar to this. You see, there has to be a yielded will and there has to be your cooperation for God to change your life. That is the only way that our nature ever becomes subdued or mortified. It's the only way. It's amazing what people do to surprise, and all the methods and and the rules and the laws that people use to try to subdue that nature. When God says this is the only way, this is the only real way that you'll ever find victory. Let me give you several thoughts as we close. First truth is this. Even God cannot change us without our consent or cooperation. He can't change you. When you say no, God stops. That doesn't mean he doesn't start divine discipline or, or corrective operation. Second, we owe it to God to allow him to lead us by faith, or by his spirit, by faith, through faith. Thirdly, resisting God clearly invites divine discipline. When you resist God, when you take that switch and say, wait a minute, I'm trying this different. 
you open your life to divine discipline, which can lead in its ultimate to a sin unto death. In just for in justification, God saves us from the penalty of sin in sanctification. This is the process in which God is saving us from the power of sin. And, and the fifth is something that you, we just all need to get a better vision and a better glimpse of. So often we think you know, eternal rest, eternal life, will someday magically come after when we step through the veil, it's like somebody throws a switch, and all of a sudden we experience eternal life. This is, this is not what God has in mind. Just as that death that he's talking about is not about the second death, nor is the life that he's talking about sometime after death. Life he's talking about, the eternal life, is something that God wants you to start now in what we know as time. God intends that you experience eternal life now in your walk with God so that when you step through the veil, it's just a little clearer. Let's pray. Or let's bow. Eyes closed, heads bowed. You know, this passage is, is talking to believers. It's talking to those who are a part of the family of God. And friend, if you can't go to a time, a place, or a moment when you have personally, personally said yes to Jesus Christ and have, given, uh, have just asked him uh, to come into your life, into your heart, and have received him, this passage means nothing to you because, friend, the only thing that you have is a certainly fiery judgment awaiting you. And so if you've never received Jesus Christ, I would encourage you today, this moment, to simply, in the very simplest of terms, say, yes, Lord, I, I, I'm choosing to trust in you today. I'm choosing to place my eternity into your hands. I'm choosing to receive you. And, and if you want to do that, just a simple yes. Would, would I'm I'm God's just not enamored with a bunch of words. A simple yes would just would do that for you. I'm convinced it would change your destiny. Now, for those of you who are part of the family of God, if, if you've been running around and and trying all different kinds of methods. Try throwing the switch up. I'm, I'm encouraging you today to trust his spirit. To allow the spirit of God to place his hand on your hand. On your heart. And guide you. Lead you. I'm convinced this is the only way your life is going to change. And the only way you ever become real. Father, I'm just grateful as we bow before you. I'm so grateful for the clarity of your word. I'm grateful, Father, that it is so simple that even a child can understand it. And yet it has depth. 
that challenges even the, the brightest mind, the most studious person. Father, I'm grateful for the simplicity, the clarity of it. Lord, I'm grateful that you were real, that you put it to us really straight. Lord, I will pray today that as we go, would go forth from here, that we would be led of your spirit. That we would understand the necessity of cooperation, the necessity of obeying, responding, loving. Father, as we do so, as we respond to you and as, as fruit is produced, we want to give you the glory for that. We know that nothing really good of ourselves comes out. It's just because of you. And uh, we want to be careful to give you the, glory, the honor and the glory for it. For we ask it in Jesus' name and all of God's children said.